on today's episode of Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand, I got a chance to chat for the second time with the guys from Flybar, uh, etc. What a great conversation. Man, if you have ever thought about going into mass retail, this episode is for you. They walk through step-by-step what to do, what not to do, all the mistakes that they've made along the way. Just really an incredible conversation. And man, these guys from this company are unreal. I'd love to find a way to work with them uh, somehow. Really, really good guys and incredible wisdom that they have. Today's episode of Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand is brought to you by Mindful Marketing. At Mindful Marketing, they use ads to get you off using ads. Most e-commerce brands rely heavily on Facebook, Google, Snapchat, Twitter, and all the other paid platforms for the majority of their revenue. At Mindful Marketing, they use paid ads to help you build a community of loyal and repeat customers that will exist long after Facebook and Google do. In fact, Mindful Marketing wants to offer you a free e-commerce growth plan that they normally charge $500 for. A recent growth plan customer said, our ROAS tripled overnight after implementing their tactics. These guys are no joke at Mindful Marketing Co. So go to mindfulmarketing.co slash grow to claim your free e-commerce growth plan today. Now on to today's episode. All right, I am here for part two of my episode with, I, I'm gonna call them the Flybar guys. That's my, uh, my name that I have now, uh, now bestowed upon them, the Flybar guys. So guys, welcome back. Uh, last episode was wonderful. I feel like we could have continued to talk and that's why we're doing a, a part two today. <laughs> today, we're really gonna focus on retail and especially big box, large retail and, and sort of what that takes. So welcome here, Saul. I'm, I'm first gonna say hi to you, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be back. It was a lot of fun last week and I hope we'll have fun today too. I think that we're going to. Uh, I've never, we've never actually in like 200 episodes, we've never done a part one and two interview, but I, I understand now why we are. So uh, I'm really excited. Thanks for your guys' time too. Uh, I, I know it's a lot getting all of us together like this. So let's just get right into it because I think we've got a lot uh, to go over. So Obviously, uh, you guys are selling into retail. I'm going to let somebody pick off this question. If you guys listened to the last episode, and I highly suggest you go back and listen to the previous episode before you listen to this episode. We've got a lot of experts from their team and really kind of a dream team of e-commerce and brand acquisitions, uh, product development. And, and so they've got a lot to, to say to us here. And so I want to make sure that we really getting that good advice. So I'm just going to ask you guys the, the first sort of question. So obviously you guys are in retail. What was the experience like getting into large retail? Because I have never been in anything other than I think the biggest retailer we have right now is like 11 stores. Talk to me about that process of, of getting into large retail. Sergio, I think that's a, I, th- I think that's a Sergio question. Is it? Is it? So, so look, <laughs> you know, large retail, you know, it's simple and it's complicated like everything else in business. You know, the biggest thing uh, similar to e-commerce is really understanding your product understanding your market, uh, understanding what it takes to be on shelf. So really that prep work is the first starting point to making that approach to retail. And that prep work is what helps you to ultimately create a successful pitch and get in front of the, you know, get in front of usually a buyer, either in person on the, you know, nowadays it's obviously different with the pandemic, but whether it's virtual, whether it's in person, whether it's on the phone, 
It always pays to be prepared, know where you belong on shelf, be prepared with packaging. You know, your packaging is your SEO, right? Yeah, so yeah, you want to be this, you want to be discovered online when you get can, placement can I, into, yeah, go ahead. Can I, can, sorry, I, I just want to cut in there for a sec. Cause I've got, I've got a question that just came up in my head. Sure, go ahead. And I, I want to make sure it gets asked. How do you know what the good packaging is going to be? Like, do you, is that something that you're testing on? On audiences, do you you know make a thousand, put it out there, and see what flies? Is it a gut thing? I I, I don't know. You can. I mean, after after some time, obviously, once you once you have experience of kind of going to retail and looking at packaging, you you kind of know the basic DNA. But it's you know certainly you can focus group test. You can also you know look at some experts. But ultimately, you only have a couple of seconds, right? The placement on shelf is really important. You only have a couple of segments. So what do you want to get across to your to the customer? Is it eye catching, right? Is the customer you know even want to look at my packaging? Does it stand out on shelf? Does it look polished? Am I exuding the right look for my brand and for my item? So all those things really play into it. So colors, messaging, all the things that you think about in a listing, you know, when you when you're thinking about e-commerce, what do I say to the consumer? What are the reasons to buy? You need to basically get that across on your on your package. Because if they're if they're just shopping and they're going in and they're browsing or they they go in to pick up something else and they happen to walk down the aisle that you're in, it's important to be able to grab their attention. And then once you grab their attention, it's important to be able to convert that sale with what's on your box. So colors, look and feel, messaging on the package. Are you telling the consumer why to buy? Those are all key components. So coming from e-commerce background, this is all coming from the e-commerce background, you want to look at it like once you get some, you know, make the packaging exciting, right? Like pick me up, look at me, right? Like get that, that session going on e-commerce, like look at me. Once you have that session, now you want to make sure that the customer gets to feel like, oh, if I'm going to buy this, this is going to change something in my life, depending on what you're selling, obviously. But get them to re, you know, sell them why they should buy your product over somebody else's product. It, you, you have to think of it very similar to, you know, on e-commerce. When you're on e-commerce and you get going into a listing, it's like, okay, you just got the session. Now get the conversion. Once they pick up your 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 package, you want to show them value, show them a need, show them that you're solving a problem, things of that nature. Yeah, I love it because it, it is very similar to to e-commerce, right? So like them picking it up in my mind is like them uh, picking it up to look is like them clicking, right? So yep. they're clicking on that either that Google listing or that ad or whatever it is coming over, and then they're literally adding to a cart. <laughs> if if yes. they're going to look at it and add to their cart, I imagine there's a lot less abandoned carts in retail. <laughs> uh, you know, eighty five percent of people aren't leaving their cart just in the middle no, of uh, not, Toys R Us or, or whatever. But the but abandoned- we, don't, we don't have that data, right? We don't have that data now with the new with the new shopping carts that they have, where you can actually put in and it, it scans your product as you're putting it into the cart. I'm sure you've seen that. You know, the the, the digital carts we can have that data of how many people put a product in, then walk a few feet further in the aisle and pull it, pull it out and put it away and put another. Uh, Yes. We made a lot of mistakes when it comes to thinking about packaging for retail and packaging for, and and Saul mentioned value, right? Value. When you think about e-commerce and you think about some of the marketplaces, you want the, the box as small as possible. So that way the expense to ship to the consumer is the lowest. 
at retail, you can't always think that way because yeah. if you make your box too small, the the consumer is going to question value. Am I, you know, am I getting the value that I deserve for the price that I'm paying? Because your your footprint on shelf means a lot when it comes to you know, perceived value to the consumer. So we've fallen into that. It's a mindset, and yeah. you really have to be in that mindset when you're thinking about: Am I making an item for e-commerce? Am I making an item for a physical shelf? One can be successful in both, but it's definitely a different thought process. Absolutely. I I am assuming that this is a Stalin question and and correct me if I'm wrong. How do you, because you're you're the product guy, correct? Sure. Okay, (laughs) great. (laughs) So how do you balance those two things together, right? So like, are you creating separate shippable products or or is it the same product? It's the same product. We try to have a a process by where early on in the development process, we determine where is this going to launch best? Hopefully we want all our products to exist, as we've said in the previous podcast, wherever the customer is, that's where we want the product to live. But where we decide to launch it is going to depend on who's opening the door for us. Sometimes it is a retail, a brick and mortar store. And so we'll launch with them and vice versa. Sometimes we don't get that opening and we start on on e-commerce. But in both cases, we have that that struggle, as we were just saying, that sometimes the packaging needs to be specific for e-commerce versus retail versus re- versus the, the actual shelf. And sometimes we do have to make two products. I mean, the product is the same, but the packaging is different. And we, we've done that many times. And that's a challenge because it's additional skews to manage. But if we want to be in both places and we want to be cost effective in both places, we have to make the packaging at least fit both marketplaces. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. That would be a, a huge amount to try to have e-com packaging and retail packaging all, I mean, it, it would double your SKUs essentially. But we, um, in some cases we do have to do that and, and we do it and okay. it's just part of growing our business uh, correctly is being in both places. Yeah, that makes sense. I've got another question sort of off the cuff here. How do acquisitions play into all of this? Like, have you guys done any acquisitions purely to get that, to have those contacts and and open those doors? We haven't done acquisition purely for that reason. We've done acquisitions that come with relationships and that's always a a real benefit to have insight into certain retailers. But I think it's very hard in the in the retail environment when buyers are changing so often and, and getting you know new positions and moving around to to focus an acquisition solely on distribution or relationship I think could could hurt you if that relationship you know ceased to exist in a, in a couple months so I think the product is is key in the beginning and then any relationship is is uh, just kind of icing on the cake yeah okay okay that that makes a lot of sense so I'm gonna let you sort of handle whether this is your answer or not, but I've got I've got another interesting question here because I think people are probably thinking now like, okay, maybe we've sold them on going into retail and, and I hope so. I, I was on a, a clubhouse recently where I, where somebody asked, you know, like what's the biggest thing brands are overlooking? And to me, it's retail. Like it's just such a wonderful marketing channel for you as well as a sales channel, right? It's it's great. But how do you get a hold of the buyers? If people aren't coming to you, where do you find the buyers from? So sometimes you're lucky enough that when you're successful on e-commerce that and you you're you're solving a need that the buyer will reach out to you and that has happened and I hope it happens for other people as well. Obviously you need to have the right product and and solve the right need and obviously if you're focusing on your brand and building your brand and it becomes a something that people want, right? There's always the push and the pull, right? The pull is where the consumer 
is pulling your product and the push is where you're pushing it to the consumer. So if we can, if you have a good pull side, then you'll get buyers to reach out to you. For us, you know, we have a sales team and, you know, they get to know through their research, through some rep organizations, through LinkedIn, they'll reach out and find out who the buyer is. And sometimes it means knocking on the door many, 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 many times, email, LinkedIn, you know, pushes, uh, different type of buyers have been very good to us at Flybar. You know, we have some great relationships, but buyers get their email flooded, you know, daily, right? And one of the key things is finding out really when the retailer is doing their review, their product review. So, you know, before I was in retail as a company, I I had no idea. I thought, okay, I'm going to knock at the buyer's door. The buyer's going to say, yeah, and he's going to send me a PO. Like it doesn't work that way, right? You're talking about, you know, companies that have thousands of locations. They have planogram plans and they go through, you know, levels of leadership that review and approve the the planogram. And then they have a process of when the product comes in and when they have a changeover. But they also have a process when they look at your look at new product. They don't look at new product every day. So finding out when that it when that is, you know, and for that for every category, it may be a different season, right? Mm -hmm. So um spring and fall and some, you know, some people will, will, you know, have different times when they reset their, their planogram. And it's important to understand that and know that because that's going to get you, you know, to, in front of the buyer. It's not about pitching something today. If the buyer is not looking at it, they're not going to remember in four months from now when they're doing their product reviews to look at your product and to remember that you sent them an email. So it's understanding the seasonality, understanding when they're doing the reviews and going in and asking for an appointment then. So you're in their line review you that season. So let's let's talk about getting a hold of the buyers. What cuz th- this is what I would potentially do or the kind of system that I would probably set up is like okay guys just find people on LinkedIn, right? Like I don't know where else maybe you can buy a list. What sort of titles are you looking for? Like is it just buyer? Let's buyer see. buyer category analyst, uh usually category something manager is pretty popular. Traditional buyers pretty popular. Those are probably going to get about 80% of them. But that's that's where I would start. And sometimes a divisional merchandising manager, which stands for DMM. Yes. On LinkedIn, you'll see DMM. What you can do is you can reach out to them and ask them who who you should. You have this amazing product, and you can you believe that this can you know sell do really well, or it's doing really well online. And you believe it can do really well in their stores. Who would the be the person be? And most times they're nice enough to tell you who to go to, and that's usually the person that they report to, or who the buyer reports to. The buyers report to usually divisional. Okay. Really at really at the end of the day, the right answer is you have to exhaust all options. LinkedIn, phone calls, email, you know, if you've done your homework and you feel like the consumer needs your product and you've decided that your product needs to be at retail, you need to exhaust all options because, you know, some every buyer's different just like every person's different and some are going to be very open to new people and new relationships. Other other buyers are not going to be open to new people and new relationships because you know the trouble and and the time required to onboard a new supplier, onboard a new a new vendor can be problematic depending on how large a buyer's business is. So you really need to exhaust all options. There's no like one. It's hard to say without looking at the industry or the complexion of amount of retailers. It's hard to say like yeah, LinkedIn is your you know really. Yeah. It's everything like 
and and different things will be successful at different retailers. So, you know, you start somewhere, but you in all likelihood, as you identify your retail partners and where you want to be, you're probably ultimately going to exhaust every single option, whether it's networking, whether it's reps, whether it's phone calls, emails, LinkedIn, uh, that's really the truth. Yeah. Do you guys work with reps as well? Yeah. Like does your sales is your sales team just reps or are or or do you work with with specific no. reps that work with with toy stores? We use reps and we have an in-house sales team. So we use a hybrid. And depending on your industry, you probably have to go with a hybrid approach unless you're gonna have you know a massive sales team to cover the whole country. You know, depending on your industry, there could be a lot of you know specialty retailers, little mom and pops. So it depends on the circumstances in the industry. Different different oh. reps specialize in different areas. So you you, you, it's, it's hard to find a rep that covers, you know, toy and, and sporting good and mass retail. So it's, it's yeah. you really have to be strategic about it and pick the right rep for the business you're trying to, to go after. And, it, and it's not just about covering the area or the retailer. It's also about how successful are they at covering that retailer and how excited they are about, you know, your brand and your product. Mm. Uh, because obviously, if they're not excited and they're a company that reps a lot of different brands, then you get into the situation where, you know, where does your brand and where, do you, where does your product rank within their level of excitement as they look at, you know, I've had a rep tell me that, you know, their briefcase. Uh, who do they pull out in specific meetings out of their briefcase? Mm. I guess that makes sense because these reps have a lot of uh, a yes. lot of people that they're, that they're repping. Go for it, Tal. But if you're new to this, right? If you have never sold Target, never sold Walmart, never sold Dick Sporting Goods or any other large retailer, I would recommend you know finding the correct rep, right? And that and I'm using those. You know, you got to find the right rep. Don't just take anybody who says, "Oh, I can sell them," right? Somebody that that's their specialty, right? Somebody that lives in Minneapolis, has an office showroom in Minneapolis. That's who, who you probably want because that's their business target, right? They'll help you, guide you. They'll know everything. They'll know how to pitch. The, they'll know the seasonality. They'll know the line reviews, when they are, and they really help you. The key thing is, and you know, don't ever pay a rep unless they actually make a sale. Like a lot of times little reps will tell you, oh, to do your line, it's gonna be, we're gonna have to go on retainer. Like, don't make that mistake. You know, that can be just a, a very expensive mistake. Okay, sign so just pay a percentage. No nope. that's, that's percentage, what you're that's it. Yeah, you sign up, you sell, you get paid. And reps are used to that. Sometimes they see an opportunity, small guy, and they just put them on a retainer totally. and oh, $8,000 a month. And before you know it, you just spent a hundred grand and you're nowhere, right? So, you know, it's like they get the sale done, they get rewarded. They don't get the sale done, they don't get rewarded. Should you put every single, like, are you trying to sell your brand to these people or are you trying to sell specific products? Depends. It, it like depends. Is, is every product able to like, like, would you sell every product or, or well, are you trying to be like, Hey, I think this specific product, you know, this pogo stick or whatever is going to be perfect for these stores. Or are you just saying like, Hey, take a look at Flybar. No, you, you need to really think, look at the end of the day, you do want to sell. Ultimately you need to sell the retailer on your brand. Like you have to be able to explain like why you exist and why it's meaningful that you exist. But inevitably, you know, the, the prep that I mentioned about you, you don't have the endless aisle, right? And there's not a magical aisle stretcher. 
that makes you know the store footprint bigger. So so if there's 20 products on the shelf, there's 20 products on the shelf and you can't fit 21 uh, necessarily. So you need to think about which of my items belong on shelf, on the physical shelf. If you're trying to displace somebody else, right? Because there's not an aisle stretcher and you can't make the shelf bigger, then you have to be able to explain why does my item belong on the shelf? Why am I better than the person that's already there? Why does your consumer ultimately want my product instead of the other 19 or other 20 that are there? And when you look at your portfolio, you need to understand the retailer, you need to understand what they sell their customer. And then you have to be able to you need to be prepared to say, hey, these are the items that I think fit if you're coming in and you're saying, here's my catalog of like lots of stuff. And you're looking, you know, the, the buy, most of these larger, most of these buyers for larger retailers, you know, their time is very valuable. So they're going to look for you to say, here's in my portfolio, I'm an expert in my own brand. I understand my competition. Here's what's going to make a lot of sense for you and your customer. And so typically that, typically, again, that mindset and that communication is going to re uh, resonate more with the buyer than just bringing in a catalog and saying, hey, here's all the stuff I have. Now, if you're like groundbreaking and you've opened up a whole new category, then perhaps, you know, there, there's a opportunity there to be more catalog driven. But but nine times out of 10, you need to walk in and explain why your brand and product makes sense. And it should be curated for that retailer and explain to them why it makes sense for them. So, so ultimately, Ultimately, that's really where you want to be keyed in on. Yeah. Any thoughts, uh, uh, Stalin or Rob? Stalin, go ahead. No, I think I, I was going to say too, when you're you're trying to say in front of a, of a buyer, it's communicating the brand. You, as, as Sergio uh, was saying, you really want to you want to want them to trust you, and the, and they want to trust the brand. They want to trust a healthy company and all those things. So you have to present may, perhaps that you're a, a company that has a big catalog, but it's going to be one as as Sergio said, the shelf space, the price is obviously so so important we i don't think we've talked enough about price but price it as much people say it's not always the important thing it's often the most important thing because if you can find a way to display someone because of price they may do that that may be that may be the reason why but again they don't they're not going to want to buy just one item from you why open up a, a whole new vendor just for one item you have to have that catalog you have to have it you have to be able to promote it you have to be able to show that you're a full-fledged brand but there may only take one or two items at, at, at the beginning and then yeah. you keep growing then you want to keep growing on that shelf so th there's a strategy to it but it's it's challenging getting those buyers to to get that first store opening absolutely I, i've actually got a question on price do you have to come in with these large retailers at keystone pricing it, it i mean the answer is it depends right? it depends on the category keystone in certain categories keystone might not be good enough it's oh a really good, it's can, a good and sorry and can you explain keystone just for for people who aren't in sure in this it's world? it's basically it, it's going to be double your 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 cost so assuming if your item's ten dollars your 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 cost is five but but it, it might not be enough it depends on the category i mean we've seen categories where you know, less margin is, you know, look, look at an issue like electronics. Electronics don't have Keystone, nowhere near it, right? They're typically anywhere between five and, you know, 30% margin, uh, including Apple products. Uh, so it depends on the industry. Uh, some industries, it's going to be acceptable to have lower margin and other industries, you might have to come in with more. And depending on your role, look, every supplier has a role for a retailer. And if your brand's not known, 
there's definitely more pressure for if you're not going to give me an item that a customer is going to be looking for, meaning they're going to want to come to my store to get it, then what role are you playing as a supplier to me? You know, if you're going to give me margin, then you have to give me more margin than than everybody else. And so mm. that may put you in a situation where you're to get your foot in the door, you might have to offer more than than uh, than tra- than you would think you would have to offer. So it depends on the industry, it depends on your product, it depends on your brand. If you're the must-have brand, then you have a lot of leverage, and yeah, totally. you might be able to get away with offering less margin. If you're not a must-have brand and you're developing, but you have a good, solid brand that you're growing and nurturing and you feel like you have a place at retail, then you might have to give a little bit more. And that's going to be your role for that retailer is I'm going to give them more margin. I'm giving them a solid brand. So it depends on all the ingredients, right? Everything you have to offer to the retailer, you have to kind of take that into account. And again, it goes back to what am I offering that they're already not getting from their existing partners? Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. So let's just say you got a big placement, you got Target. What's the time frame between that that they expect between order and you actually shipping? And then I assume I also like to hear what are those terms like with those with those big big brands? Or the, or sorry, the big retailers. So you're, you're so I'll give you an example in, in the toy kind of sporting goods area. We're we're typically pitching sometime between August and December of this year for okay. next year. Gotcha. For, for 22. So you're, you're and right. typically you wouldn't see your first order for for next year until around uh, like that May to August time frame. Typically June, July in our industry. Obviously, it's going to vary depending on the industry and the product category, but but you're you're almost always working a year plus out and when you think about i have to pitch to a retailer you know this august for next year you got to think about the prep right and i have to bring some you know if it's a new item that i don't already have developed i have to develop it and bring a sample with me so i can show them what it's going to look like so so you know you think about concept to shelf in e-commerce can be very quick yeah concept to shelf <laughs> yeah concept to shelf in brick and mortar depending on your industry depending on category of products could be you know a year a year and a half out you know even two years if it's something that you've been working on for a while and it's at the point where it's ready to show to retail so you know time can vary but you're looking anywhere from in a best case quickest you know six months all the way to a year and a half to two years Wow. Wow. And then one other question on that line. I got a couple more questions for you guys. We are going to go over our regular half an hour because I just have, uh, there's, there's so many questions that I've got still in my head. So first of all, what are uh, general terms with big retailers like that? What, what, what are we looking at? Like, is this like a month, <laughs> you know, like net 30 terms? Like what, what, what do they look like? It's, no, it's all best, over the place. Yeah. But at best it's at net 60, if you're lucky, but usually more 90 to 120 days is normal. Okay. And it's, it's very, from, yeah, or, or from delivery, delivery. delivery. And some of them are even depending how you ship. Some of them are even from when you're invoiced. So if you ship direct imports, right, which a lot of large retailers do, they'll pick it up in, in wherever the factory is, whether it's in Asia or whoever, wherever they'll, pick it up as, and then you, there's a process to invoice. And if you 
invoice five days later, it starts from when you invoice. It's not when you ship five days earlier. It's so it's going to be 125 days or something like that. T- wow. typically, typically the clock starts ticking when the retailer takes possession. So that's usually when the clock starts ticking. And, and sometimes that, that coincides with your invoice date, but, but, but how do you balance salt? I, I think this is going to be a you question. How do you balance that cash? Because that's a lot of outlay, right? That is tons of outlay waiting and waiting. Do you, do you have any tricks to balance that? No, I don't have any tricks. Sometimes very, very difficult, especially when you're growing. Like it becomes extremely difficult because you're still, you're still inventorying your, your standard e-commerce business. And then you have this huge cash outlay for, you know, these are not like, okay, I'm selling a thousand units. Sometimes you're getting a, a PO for a hundred thousand units of a product. So you can sometimes be, you know, you know, laying out a million, two million dollars, depending on what, obviously, depending on what category, what item, what the cost is of the item, right? So there are different ways of financing, you know, and that for each entrepreneur, obviously, to figure that out. But there's factoring, PO financing. You got to be very careful because those can be very expensive and it can actually hurt you. You know, you really have to know your business, know, make sure you have good margin to be able to support that, like really think it through. And that comes with full pricing, right? When as you're pricing the retailer, know where you're going to get your cash, your cost of your cost of cash needs to go into that. So you to make sure that you're going to be able able to support yourself. I think one one important thing in our journey, right, is that you have to kind of keep in mind as you start venturing out to retail and, and the size of the retailer gets larger, you know, you have to think about, okay, if I get a hundred thousand unit order, I just got a hundred thousand unit order. So now you have to go manufacture, produce, ship, finance. And it also involves all the, not only is it the capital to buy the inventory, but you now have to ship it to the retailer and, you know, all those requirements. That's part of the reason why, you know, Saul mentioned earlier, the idea of a rep and knowing the ins and outs of the retailer, you know, typically a rep knows the ins and outs of their shipping requirements. Yeah. A hundred page document that says, this is how you, you engage with us as a retailer. All those pieces are important because mm. if you don't do it right and you get a, you know, let's say you got a hundred thousand unit order and you know that you get a chargeback for 10 to 20% of that order, you know, that's a, that's a huge chunk of money. So, so the complexities you do have to, as you start venturing out and, and you decide that that's a path you want to go down, that becomes critical, right? The ability to scale your operation to handle that volume is really important. And it's, it's something that we've stumbled, you know, we've kind of stumbled and worked through over the last couple of years, factory setups, if you're shipping import, all those things that you don't necessarily think about all come into play. And, and uh, it is time consuming and puts a lot of strain on on your resources. You know, it's something that we've been through. And no matter how we no matter how many times we go through it, there's always different things that happen and different angles. And, you know, there, one retailer does it slightly different way and and um, yeah. makes it interesting. Let's talk. Uh, I, I've got I've got two more questions for you here, seeing as I, I feel like we've gone through a lot of stuff. This is going to be one of those episodes uh, that I think people should listen to a couple times, uh, especially if you're thinking about getting into into big retail. I think there's some some real um, nuggets there. Rob, I've got a question uh, for you specifically. Let's talk about um, licensing. So you've gotten in, you have these relationships built with these stores. Talk to me about how licensing fits in to help you get on more shelves. Well, I think, I think you know, one of the biggest challenges at retail, especially if you're just getting started and, and you've only got, you know, one item, you've got one really great item and you've got some retail interest, but they, you know, as we mentioned before, 
they don't want to onboard and go through the effort of onboarding a, a company for one product. They don't know if it's going to be successful. It's unproven. They don't know your company. Um, and it takes a lot of time to do that. So they may just pass on you. And it doesn't mean your product's not a great product. It may just mean that, that the buyer um, just doesn't have the bandwidth to onboard a new vendor at the time. So I think you know, another option for, for those people, those inventors is toy companies, just like, you know, Flybar, we're looking for awesome ideas and, and, and products all the time that, that we can help, you know, leverage our relationships and, and space at, at retail to bring those, those products, you know, to life. So, you know, if you're successful online, maybe, maybe, you know, one option you should explore to get into retail is licensing your product to a brand that's already bigger or more established gotcha. in the retail space. I understood your question a, li a little bit differently, but it's also could also be answered. You know, I thought your question was like getting a license on a product. And that's another angle, right? Where maybe mm -hmm. your brand, your product fits a certain brand. You know, I'm not talking about just getting a brand for your product where you just label slap. You know, if, if your product fits a certain brand, going and getting a license and then pitching to retail your licensed solution, that could, you know, that can talk to a buyer more so than just a solution. A solution with a license is a lot stronger than just a solution. Gotcha. So, yeah. If you, I mean, you kind of see it in the, you see it like if you go down the candy aisle, you see all these, all these co-licensing where you have like all these animated characters and movies and totally. stuff, and that's more marketing, but... But look, at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, retailers, some retailers are very risk averse. So if you ultimately make them feel more comfortable by putting a brand that, that the consumer knows, it makes a buyer feel better about taking a little bit more risk and, and stepping out a little bit more. So there are companies that, you know, take every known item and, and, and license a brand and put it on their product and they do very well. So I think it depends on the market. It depends on the industry uh, in terms of whether licensing fits in. But at the end of the day, it is about making the retailer and the buy buyers for that retailer more comfortable with taking a risk, making them feel like, hey, the consumer is going to recognize this and pick it up. That's kind of what you want to think about. And some licenses make a lot of sense and some licenses don't make sense and they'll just add cost to your product. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, licenses yeah. can be expensive depending on how you're going to use them. And, and you might not even be able to get the license. Right. I, I, I wanted to add that I didn't want to sugarcoat like getting that type of license because we do it. It takes a lot of time. It takes some legal reviewing of contracts and there's margin guarantees. So it's a really great idea if the product really, really fits and you can get the license, but it's it's not an easy thing to do without making some investment. In, and like like all things that, that we've shared here, you got to do your due diligence and do your homework before you take those steps and you don't want to make a, a costly mistake. Some Absolutely. of the some of the big content owners, you know, when you think about the Disney's of the world, they're very, very particular about you know, how you use their brands and the approval process. So working through that process, that's kind of what Stalen lives and breathes every day and his team. It's, you know, consuming it. It's it, it's fruitful uh, with the right partner and the right use, but it is, it is a process and they're very stringent. Yeah, for sure. Super interesting stuff, guys. We are going to wrap up here, but I'm going to ask you each one more question. The question I have to ask on every single podcast episode, and I didn't even ask you guys last time because I knew it was going to be two episodes. <laughs> Let's go ahead and start with, uh, with Sergio. Sergio, what is your secret to scaling? My secret to scaling? 
I think the secret to scaling is all about team. You know, if you have the right team, scaling is very achievable. So, but having the right team, having the right talent is critically important. Usually with the See, right talent, you get, you can achieve anything. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I'm obsessed with good teams. That's, that's really often people will, will ask me, they're like, well, how do you run like multiple businesses and do, and, and still, I, I only work nine to two every day, just so everyone knows. It's awesome. Uh, because I like my life better than business. <laughs> I like them both combined, but it's team, right? You just find good people who love doing what they're doing. So I, I, I absolutely love it. Um, Stalen, what's your secret to scaling? I think uh, Sergio took mine, but uh, so I'll, oh. I'll try a, a little <laughs> different, a different route that from having been working with Saul for five years and and with the inception of of the Flybar, the new Flybar from 2015, that it is perseverance. That when you get knocked down, you just keep getting up, and it's 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 just being able to take it in the chin, make mistakes, learn from them, move on and keep going. And, and that's the way you're going to scale. If you let any of those roadblocks slow you down or stop you, you're not, you're not going to grow. You just have to take it and keep going. Great answer. I love that. Uh, Rob, what, what is your secret to scaling? Yeah, I'm mute. <laughs> We've got a muter here. <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, you have to have a clear vision and know where you want to get and anticipate things and, and constantly be working to that because the, the day you need to, you know, as you scale, you need to be thinking, you know, what's the department I need six months from now and what steps do mm. I need to be taking today so that I'm not surprised then. So uh, I think just being very forward looking. Absolutely. And Saul, the fearless leader, tell me what is your secret to scaling? It's fearless. Vision, I think, is something that, and I think you create vision through curiosity. Be curious. Just constantly ask questions and say, how did this guy do it? What did he do? And then believe and trust that you can do it and, and take action. I think that's what it is. It's really about looking at, at things and saying, if, if they did it, I can do it better. And believe in yourself and just ask questions and, 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 and dig and dig and look for answers and then you'll figure it out and you'll be able to do it. No question. You know what I found interesting about every one of your answers is that everyone epitomized one of the seven habits of highly effective people. Like it, like absolutely like teamwork is, is all about interdependence, right? Um, Saul, you were basically spouting every single one of them off and it makes sense because you guys are effective and successful, right? Like, you know, for, first seeking to understand, right? Understanding if you can't understand what your customers want, how in the world can you make something that they're going to love and is going to enrich their lives, right? I found this conversation uh, wonderful. I, thank you guys so much for your time. Where can people um, find out more about um, Flybar and more about your team? We can find out about Flybar on one of our websites, uh, flybar.com, swerfer.com, vertigo, vertigopogo.com, waddleandfriends.com. And we're all on LinkedIn. And uh, we're happy to help if somebody's looking for help. Obviously, not a competitor, but even a competitor will be. Hey, like, unless you want to buy them. <laughs> uh, exactly. You know, that comes with the conversation, right? When they call us, it's like, can we buy you? But we're all on LinkedIn and we're happy to help. We're, you know, we, we want to see other people succeed as well. And if somebody Absolutely. has questions, we do it all the time. You know, whether it's licensing, how to pitch, you know, reviewing somebody else's pitch. We've even, we've even had somebody pitch us like we're the buyer. Like we've done stuff like that. So... Mm. We're happy to do that. Well, that's great. I'm going to make sure to put uh, all those links, uh, including your LinkedIn connects in the show notes. So guys, feel free to go to the page uh, on the Mindful Marketing website uh, and check that out. Guys, thank you so much uh, for coming on. This was a unique and uh, incredibly fun conversation for me. So thank you. 
Thank you for having us. Hey guys, we hope you really enjoyed today's episode. Can we ask you a favor? Hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode and share this with your e-commerce store owner friends. We also love reviews. So if you could leave us one on Apple Podcasts, that would mean so much to us. Just a reminder from the beginning of the episode, our team at Mindful Marketing is rapidly growing and we have room for one new brand a month that's looking to grow. Now, before you apply, please note that we're only looking for businesses that are ready to scale and have the capacity and the inventory for a large influx of orders. This opportunity is only available to brands that have had at least one year of sales history and are ready for explosive growth. If this sounds like you, go to mindfulmarketing.co slash apply and start the process today. I hope you guys have a great week.